0: Friends, would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. So, we are in a series where we are looking at the incarnation of Christ. If you look at the the subtitle up there, you can see that we, we often look at the incarnation as the wonder. And sometimes the wonder is more about the wonder of Christmas and the season that we look at. It's like, oh, the wonder. I wonder what's underneath the tree right? I wonder what I'm going to get. Oh, the wonder of snow, and oh, the Christmas decorations. But what I really want us to be looking at as we look in Philippians chapter 2 is I want us to look at the incarnation, the mystery, and therefore the wonder of, of Christmas. What really took place here? Last week, we looked at, and Zach, you can kind of shoot at the next one. I said, this is really kind of our our goal. The mystery of Christmas is not found primarily in the circumstances, the circumstances of the birth of Jesus, but rather in the identity of the baby that is in the manger. So Charlotte was, so you should have seen her, she was like, jumping up and down here in the back because she was so excited to see the baby in the manger. And the thing that we should be excited about is who is in the manger. It's great to have these nativity sets, right, that are are set up with all the, you know, the people, you know, you got the nativity, what is it called, a, a creche? That has like the that the stable and it has all the, the cows and the baby and the shepherds and all this kind of stuff around there. And you might have multiple ones set up around your house. We even have one set up out in front. We should be all excited about all the circumstances, but we need to be focused on during this time who is in that manger. Last week we we unpacked verse six. He was in the very nature of God and did not count equality with God to be grasped. This week we are going to be unpacking verse 7. And I'm going to tell you, every single word in that verse is important. And I want us to see the, the truths that are unfolding here. Or else we are going to lose who is this baby that came to earth and is in a manger. Every single one of those words is critical. The story of Christ is is seen, can be seen in a nativity set throughout your house. You, you, You can have all the right people in all the right places, but the centerpiece of every nativity set, even the centerpiece of all scripture is found on this child. And it's all around this idea, this reality that Christ became humanity. He became man. Mary and Joseph were told that they were going to be parents. Angels came and they they announced the, the birth of this child. The child was not surrounded by pomp and circumstance, but rather in quiet and humble circumstances himself. They find themselves in a cattle stall without hospital assistance. There were no pottery barn blankets whatsoever found. And this child came into our humanity. This child came into our pain, into our suffering, into our frailty. And that Christ, that Christ came into our world in a quiet night, in a barn stall. In that moment, God came near. So my friends, Here's a question for you. As we, we are going to be reading Philippians five or 2, 5 through 11, this question, and maybe you want to write it down. When was the last time your heart marveled at the thought of Christ? Not the season. When was the last time your heart marveled at the thought of Christ. The reality is, as I prepared this week, and I had a whole sermon written before, I threw it all away. If you look on, on my, my Dropbox file, this is O2 Incarnation B. Because the first one just didn't do it. Because I found myself over and over this week, keep looking at this passage, thinking about what God has done. So I want us to marvel at Christmas. So we must do this, we we must understand the identity of Christ and the reason for his birth. And Philippians 2 tells us how the Son of God stepped into our humanity, and it tells us one of the most stunning realities telling us that God actually, and this, this kind of blew my mind a lot, even last week, how the, the boundless God chose to somehow confine himself in a baby. Think about that. Have you, can, you, can you marvel at that? The boundless, infinite, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipresent God chose to find himself and pour himself into humanity. Can you marvel at that? Or has it just become, oh yeah, Jesus became man. Think about it. <laughs> For God and man to be reconciled, it required God to do all the work on our behalf. So in love, God humbles himself by doing the absolute unthinkable. Unthinkable. The created, uncreated one becomes, think about it, becomes created. The uncreated one becomes created. The maker of Mary is now Mary's son. The word incarnation just basically means the taking on flesh, and that is exactly what God has done. So this is a Christ hymn. This is a song that they believe would have been sung in the early church in one shape, form, or of another. And this song is, song is tucked into the folds of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And it is here to help us see the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the marvel of Christ in the face of man. And so that we ourselves would grow in humility and Paul is writing here so that we can experience the joy, the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. And if we are going to be the people of deep-seated, ever-growing, in our walking-through-the-valley-of-the-shadow-of-death kind of joy, then we need to, we all need to keep staring at the person, and at the work of Christ until we marvel at this Christ. The more that we do this, the more that we stare, the more that we marvel, the more that we meditate, the more that we see Christ in this child, the more that we will be oriented and centered on Christ Jesus. The more that Christ will be formed in us. Galatians 4.19 Paul's greatest desire for the church in Galatia was that Christ would be formed in them, and that requires that for us to be form, have Christ formed in us, we need to stare at this Christ, know the identity of this babe in a manger. and this in this kind of, living, this kind of living, a life filled with humility, is the very thing that He purchased us for. And is even available for us. So we're going to look this morning at three things after I read. Long intro. Three things. The first thing is Christ emptied himself for us. Then we're going to see how Christ became a servant for us. And then lastly, Christ was born one of us for us. So my friends, would you would you stand as we look at Philippians chapter 2 starting at verse 11 or 5 reading through verse 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. Did you hear that? It's yours. In Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not take equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want us to kind of zoom in at verse verse 7. Verse 7. Let me just read it again. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Like I said, every word in there is jam-packed with meaning and is critical to our understanding. So the first thing I want us to see is that Christ emptied himself for us by taking on the form of a servant. The story of redemption actually began way before the incarnation of Christ. Before. It it actually started before time began. It started in eternity past where God, out of love, fashioned all things that would be. So before even he created the world, before he spoke things into being, before he, he crafted animals and humanity and this world that we live in, God knew God knew so the story of redemption even began before anything began and last week when we started this series with a baby that we needed to see we saw that this this child who came was the word of God he was the author of life he was the light of the world he was the hope of glory Jesus always was so he was involved in this story of redemption In verse 6, we we were told that he was in the form of God, and he didn't count equality with God to be grasped. We were left to ask, what kind of king is this? What kind of king does this? What what does the uncreated, ever-reigning Christ, who is equal with God, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what kind of God did not count equality with God something to, to be grasped what does that mean and our verse today shows us how he did not use his power his glory to his advantage but instead what did he do he stewarded it for the advantage of other people for humanity now we see Christ honing in on the work of the incarnation. And how does he do it? He empties himself. So one of the dangers we need to be aware of is how we think of this, him emptying himself. There, are, there have been throughout church history heresies, false teachings, utter, wrong, Christless, gospel-free understandings of what does it mean when God emptied himself so listen carefully very closely to this Christ did not empty himself of being God he did not empty himself of being God but he emptied himself by becoming human God didn't Christ did not surrender his deity he didn't surrender he did not give up his, his, his his godness, but he added to himself humanity. Does that make sense? So out of humility and out of love, Christ humbled himself. A.W. Tozer put it this way, he veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. Do you understand the picture of a veil? Think of a bride. Uh, Who is coming down? Often you'll you'll see, or at least back in the day, there was often a veil over their face, and you could not see clearly this woman. You knew it was, or you were hoping it was her coming down, right? But because there was a, a veil, you're hoping coming down. So in in some way, Christ veiled his deity, but in doing that, he did not void it. It was not null. It was not empty. He he laid aside his dignity, but not his power. He did not lay aside his authority. He did not lay aside his his godness. So empty means made nothing or rendered powerless. The Apostle Paul even used this word in other places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of christ be emptied of its power so now did paul think that the gospel of christ could be emptied the good news of christ somehow be emptied of its power Absolutely not. He did not mean, there's no way that the gospel itself, the good news of Jesus Christ could be somehow emptied and drained of its power. But what he did mean was that there was a way of preaching and a way of speaking that could disguise or veil the glory of Jesus Christ. The same is true for us. There's no way that you and I can, could uh, drain the power of the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. But there's ways that we could speak, preach, or live that could somehow veil or disguise the power and glory of the gospel. So Paul is not suggesting in any way that Jesus is emptying himself of his role of being God, but he is veiling himself by becoming man. John Calvin, just so you know, I'm going to quote a few dead guys because they're far smarter than me. John Calvin put it this way, Christ indeed could not divest himself of godhood but he kept it to conceal for a time, that it might not be seen under the weakness of flesh. So he laid aside his glory in the view of men, not by lessening his glory, but by concealing it. Jim Packer in his his well-known book, Knowing God, places before us the centrality of the Incarnation. And and he talks about how the, the Incarnation is the greatest stumbling block of humanity. The idea of God becoming flesh is a huge stumbling block for humanity. And what he means by that is if we believe the Incarnation, God becoming man, then we can believe the rest of Scripture Surely, if Christ is God, then he can heal the sick. If Christ is God, then surely he can be raised from the dead. Listen to what J.I. Packer writes. The Word was made flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human babe. Unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises. Needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. Jesus did not come out of the womb talking eloquently like a human. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And he goes on to say, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. Christ himself, God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Christ himself humbled himself by emptying himself, veiling himself, becoming a baby. So for a moment, I want us to think about what is the motive of Christ for emptying himself and becoming a baby? Why would he do this? It makes no sense in our human economy, does it? I mean, any of you would go, I'm looking for upward mobility. Right? But this is... Actually, backwards. This is not upward mobility. This is condescension. This is the coming down and the veiling of what is... He is entitled to all of this. But yet, he chooses. So the Gospel of John tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did he do this? Out of love. What kind of king is this? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, my sake, our sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, do you know how it ends? You might become rich through his poverty. This is the condescension of God in the person of Christ. He emptied himself. The great hymn said this, Veiled in flesh the Godhead seed. Hail! Hail the incarnate deity! Hail! Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. So Christ emptied himself for us. Friends, I want you to marvel at. Let's look at this next thing, because this is even stunning. So not only did he, he, the, the boundless God bind himself in the form of mankind, not only that, but it goes to the next step. Christ became a servant for us. Christ became servant. So let me read verses 6 and 7 who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hoarded or demanded, but he emptied himself. He poured himself into humanity, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. So two things that we can see here. We see that he was born, he was in the form of God, and now we see that he is in the form of a servant. Did you that up first, he's in the form he he is God, and now he is in the form of man. So two things I want you to see: Christ took this nature; he took this nature, the humility of Christ, the stewardship of Christ, not counting his 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 position to be taken of uh, to be taken advantage or exploited. That is consistent of the character of Christ from eternity past. And now he is uniquely expressing his servanthood by taking on flesh and becoming a man. Christ has always, Christ has always been a servant. The second thing is this phrase, the form of God is the same phrase that we we see in our previous verse. What does it mean? It means that Christ has the outward expression of an inward reality. That He he shared in the essence and the divine attributes of God that He was God through and through. Outwardly, He was God. Inwardly, He is God. He is fully God. God. So here, when Christ takes on the form of a servant, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus looks like a servant as he is doing all this stuff on the outside. Why? Because the reality is Christ is a servant on the inside. He is fully a servant outwardly and inwardly. He is a servant through and through, just as he is God Through and through. What kind of God, what kind of king does this? Only our Jesus. Now where else do we get this strong sense of the servitude servitude of of Christ than what we see here in verses uh, 6-11? through Taking on flesh, being born in the likeness of men. Next week we are going to see him dying in the place of sinful humanity. This is the place where we are going to see the service of God in place. Where else can we see this? We can look to John 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus has his closest friends around him. In John chapter 13, if if you don't remember, John chapter 13 is where Jesus is having that final meal with his dearest friends the night before he was betrayed, right? Right? It was a a close, intimate moment, and they're sharing their last meal together. What is Christ doing? He is teaching up to his very last moments about his humanity and his servanthood. And this is what John writes in John chapter 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He didn't, in that moment, also, like a Superman, pull back the veil and go, oh, and everything, that whole room started glowing, and they, you know, it kind of, everything kind of pulsed with his power in that moment. He could have, but instead, what did he do? He laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin, and what did he do? he began to wash the disciples' feet and wash them with the towel that was wrapped around him. My friends, this is the humble servant king that Paul wants us to see. Up to his death, his night with his dearest, closest friends, what is he doing? He's washing feet. The role of a the lowest servant in the household. Jesus wants us to see this. Paul wants us to see the glory of Christ, the one who from eternity possessed the quality of servanthood is now in flesh, fully manifesting his servanthood. The one from whom whose entire ministry is marked with the practice of service. Jesus served his mothers. Jesus served his friends. Jesus served these random people. Think about the story of the, what was his first uh, miracle? Anybody? We had water into wine. He, he was at the wedding can of Galilee. Do you remember that? He, his very first miracle was one where he is serving It should have been the junk wine at the end, the cheap stuff, because everybody might be so blitzed that they don't even recognize it. But what does he do? He says, oh, I'm bringing the good stuff. Even the steward at the wedding goes, hmm, what? This is really good stuff. Jesus said, huh, I came to serve. On top of that, you see Jesus serving the woman who is caught in adultery, right? Right? saving her from being stoned by her accusers and ministering forgiveness to this woman caught in adultery who, by the Old Testament law, should have been stoned to death. But Jesus served her. On top of that, you see Jesus serving the woman at the well by giving her the kind of water that would only quench her deepest need. Not just water to say, oh, I'm hydrated but water to fill her soul with an eternal kind of water. On top of that, you see Jesus serving Jairus by bringing Jairus' daughter back from the dead. He served in that way. He served the, the man born blind by opening his eyes and washing him of his sin. Jesus served the outcast, the sick, the afflicted, the sinner. Jesus served By enduring the passion on the cross, in that moment, he could have called down legions of angels to decimate everybody and end the pain. But all the way to the end, Jesus came and served, and he served all the way to his death. My friends, this is the humble king that we worship. Jesus Christ is our Lord that we should be marveling at. Think of the wisdom to save us. So let's go back to our framework for this passage, right? Let's remember why Paul is writing this. Verse 5 says to remember the sense of why he is singing about Christ here. Have this mind among yourselves. Have this mind which is... Yours in Christ Jesus. Why does Paul want us to do this? What what does he want us to do here? This is what he wants us to do. He wants us to stare at Christ. Cultivate humanity or humility. He wants us to stare at Christ. Cultivate humility. He wants us to stare at Christ. And again, cultivate humility. This is what Paul is going after in this section so here our theology our biblical theology and our practice is closely linked we can think about these things and go oh that's really good but Paul is saying no I want you to stare at this child and I want you to cultivate what is yours in Christ Jesus we want you to I want you, we want you to be people of the book who know God's word, who grow theologically, who grow in your knowledge of what is going on in the story of Scripture. We want you to know that, but we also want you to translate it, and we want you to, it to apply to your life, and we want you to be transformed from the inside out. That's what we want. I don't want you just to have information that puffs you up. I want you to have information that transforms your heart and then transforms your life so that you are more willing to submit to the lordship of our humble king. You are willing to say, whatever this book says, Lord, whatever you say of me, I recognize it's true and I'm willing to be transformed and changed in every nook and cranny of my life. That is what I want. We want to see Christ formed in our hearts and our lives so that our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces are transformed with the gospel. As a pastor, I've had multiple opportunities to do weddings. And in that, part of my calling... And that process is to remind a couple and even to remind myself the importance of humility within the context of marriage. If you've been married more than five minutes, you know that's true. So I have to challenge the the man as the new head of his home to serve and lay down his life for his wife. There should, be, this, there should be one, these should be one of the places where we see humility just constantly being cultivated in our life as a, as a couple is staring at Christ. So if you're looking for a good litmus test, a good litmus test of how you are growing in humility like Christ, a good place to start is asking your spouse, asking your children Asking your friends, how am I doing? How am I doing in cultivating humility? Am I growing as a servant? Am I? Maybe what you're discovering is that you are not growing in your humility, in your servanthood. What you need to do, my friends, is look to Christ and ask Him to help you grow in humility, to take... to to make you more servant-oriented, to look with eyes open, wide at your wife and your children and just model what Jesus is doing. This is the Christ that we as a church need to be looking towards. How can we be serving one another? But Friends, I want to briefly applaud you as you are growing in God's grace. I see many of you serving gladly and sacrificially and humbly and saying, you know what, I'm willing to give up my rights and my my point of uh, position within the church in in order to take on a place of servanthood. I will do that for you. Oh, you should be doing it because that's really kind of how we feel, right? You should be doing this. But a servant also says, I will do this. I see it in how uh, we are humbly serving in our children's and women's and men's and our elders and our deacons and our candidates, those who do our accounting, our worship ministry, our hospitality, all of us. I want to keep encourage you to keep up doing this good work. It is a God-glorifying, glorifying, grace-filled kind of work that looks like our servant king. But continue, my friends, to continue to keep growing in that. And let's commit by God's grace to commit to walking that path of Christ by growing as servants. Because it's ours in Christ Jesus. Keep growing in that. But here's the last thing. And I'm way behind time, but that's okay. Christ was born one of us for us. What I really want us to gather from this is that this line changes everything. He emptied himself by taking on the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. Let's remember that for millennia, people have been waiting for this moment. We first hear of this moment in Genesis 3.15, where the whisper of the promised redemption is given. That the seed of the woman would someday crush the seed of the serpent. It is the same thing that Isaiah prophesied as we used in our call to worship. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. This is all that the prophets had foretold. This is what the tabernacle in the desert, the law, and the Psalms all pointed to. They pointed to this night. God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ, adding to himself flesh. One of my most recent favorite songs is one that we are going to be singing after Uh, this sermon, and when we take the, the Lord's Supper, come behold the wondrous mystery. I hope you listened to it this morning. If you didn't, next time. But in that first verse of the song, the authors wrote this. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. We don't want to lose what this song is saying, right? Christ condescended and he took on flesh, flesh like yours, flesh like mine. So what the Bible is telling us here is this amazing truth that I cannot fully explain to you. Theologians do their very best to give kind of English language to it. And so they came up with this great term called the hypostatic union. Sounds like a party, doesn't it? Hypostatic union. I'm not going to define it for you, but what they are trying to articulate is that Jesus is 100% God and he is 100% man in one person, two natures. That is hypostatic union. He did not lay aside his deity to become man. He maintained his deity. Now, Jesus is in the incarnation 100% man. So let me take you back to the text. What Paul is, uses, the, the word that Paul uses is, is this likeness of man? What do you think he's doing here? What Paul is trying to say that is that Jesus is fully human, but there is a, a difference between Christ's humanity and our humanity. And this bit is massively important for us. The difference between our humanity and the humanity of Christ is that Jesus was not born with a sin nature. He was not born with the sin nature. So we believe that the Bible teaches us that we are all born separated from God by our sin. All the way from birth. Even the sweetest children that we love to cuddle and hear them coo. You will know within three minutes that these children are born with sin. Very quickly. Jesus was different. And he is different because he was born with no sin whatsoever. And that is the difference between our humanity and the humanity of Christ. He uses this word, the likeness of men. What we want to hold to is that Jesus is fully human. One person, two natures. The divinity of Christ was not some kind of imagination. It was not some kind of divine trick. Jesus was truly human. He laid there totally, totally dependent upon his mother. And, but Luke 2 says that he grew in his stature. He learned things. And the crazy thing is that the omniscient one learned. The omnipotent one grew muscles. Think about that. Can you marvel with me? The one who spoke and creation happened had to grow muscles. He was a puny little 13-year-old boy that had pimples like the rest of us. the one person in two natures, the omniscient one also was veiled and his wisdom, in his wisdom he saw things in other people that they themselves could not see. He knew, he knew things but chose to hold back. Did you even know that right now, we often get this jumbled, that the work of adding flesh to himself Jesus added flesh to himself by becoming human. That, my friends, was a permanent work. So right now, Jesus is the same height that he was when he died. Five, six, six foot, I don't know how tall Jesus was, but he was Human, and he still is not human. He is not like we have this comic book kind of idea that he is a, a hundred feet tall, like a Marvel uh, comic character. He was not, he's not a hundred feet tall looming up over us in a glorified body, but he is, has a human body like ours. And my friends, that is good news because that body will not ever know corruption. And that is what is promised to you and to me in our new birth. In this world that is going to be coming a new body that is free from sin, that is free from sickness, that is cleansed from sorrow, that is renewed, that is whole, that is perfect. That is what is promised to us. And Jesus is our forerunner. He has gone before us in that amazing work of this new humanity. So to try to describe that kind of permanent work is insurmountable. We try to do our best to bend our English language around the truth of who Christ is. But in the end, we will all fail. So what I'm going to do is, again, quote some of my favorite dead guys. Spurgeon, listen to him. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. As Jesus Christ is a child in his human nature... He is born, begotten of the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. He is as truly born as certainly a child as any other man that ever lived upon the face of the earth. He is thus in his humanity a child born, but as Jesus Christ is Son's God, he is not born, but given. Begotten of the Father, from before all worlds, begotten, not made, being of the same substance with the Father, the doctrine of eternal affiliation of Christ is to be received as an undoubtable truth of our holy religion. But as to any explanation of it, no man should venture thereon, for it remaineth among the deep things of God one of those solemn mysteries indeed into which the angels dare not look, nor do they desire to pry into, a mystery which we must not attempt to fathom, for it is utterly beyond the grasp of any finite being. As well might a gnat, I love this, this metaphor, as a gnat seeks to drink in the ocean as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God. Imagine a gnat trying to drink up the whole ocean. That's our attempt to understand our, our eternal God. A God whom we could understand would be no God at all. If we could grasp him, he would not be infinite. If we could understand him, he would not be divine. So Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we might do all the words of His law. My friends, this this is the good news. That God became man. And it was for our good. And I hope, my friends, if any of you are here and finding this to be a stumbling block, would you please consider listening, staring at this Christ? I'm inviting you during this season to trust this Christ as revealed in, in Philippians chapter 2. Stare at Him and pray that you might be made alive. For the rest of us, let's not let this season slip away. As we sing beautiful carols about the incarnation of God, let's let our hearts truly marvel. Marvel. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead. <laughs> and he was pleased to do that for our sake. Let's pray.